0: Continuing through the uh, Gospel of John, we're going to be reading uh, chapter 8, verses 48 to 59. The Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it. Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. If my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God, but you have not known him, I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out into the temple. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: We just take a moment to pray. Lord, I ask you now to take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think with them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. I'm wondering if my opening illusion is uh, too far back in the past for any of you. I think most of you will recognize it. How many of you have watched Seinfeld? Well, at least a few. Well, you may recall an episode of about 25 years ago entitled The Comeback, It all revolved around a conversation in the opening scene between George Costanza and a co-worker named Riley. The two are taking a snack break at a business meeting when Riley observes that George is gobbling down considerably more than his fair share of shrimp cocktail. This prompts Riley to remark, hey George, the ocean called and they're running out of shrimp. Well, the result is that for much of the remaining half-hour of the program, we see George making a whole series of desperate attempts to find a comeback equally witty to Riley's. But the outcome of all his efforts is a series of rejoinders that range from the pathetic to the positively offensive. Well, this morning's verses um, from John come at the end of a series of exchanges between Jesus and some of the Pharisees. You can detect their hostility right from the very beginning. In verse 12, Jesus has just made one of his seven amazing, great I Am proclamations. I am the light of the world, says Jesus. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Well, coming from anyone else, this would seem to be an outrageously egotistical claim to make. And so, understandably, um, it, it prompts a contrary response from the Pharisees in the following verse. They say to Jesus, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. And so the debate begins, back and forth, back and forth, going on and on through the following 35 verses, and taking us right up to this morning's passage. And this time, it's the Pharisees' turn to fire the opening volley, and it is a zinger. Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Well, to understand the depth of this insult, Take a moment, if you can, and think all the way back to chapter 4 of John's Gospel, to that conversation that Jesus had with a Samaritan woman. You may recall how Jews and Samaritans regarded one another with hostility. In fact, they had been engaged in an ongoing feud that had lasted not just for years, but for centuries. The result was that to call another person a Samaritan was to class them with the lowest of the low, someone you would not trust to let out of your sight for even a fraction of a second. And then, as though that insult were not enough, the Pharisees added another. You have a demon. It was as if to say that Jesus was not only a sad specimen of humanity, but that he was positively evil. However, it's already clear that the Pharisees' argument is weak. As Bishop J.C. Ryle observed 150 years ago, to lose temper and call names is a common sign of a defeated cause. But once again, Jesus is ready with an answer for the Pharisees. I do not have a demon, but I honour my Father, and you dishonour me. Now, these words of Jesus may not stand out for us as being especially remarkable. As Christians, we're accustomed to addressing God as our Father. We just did a few moments ago. But I can only imagine that for the Pharisees, Jesus referring to God as my Father would have more than raised a few eyebrows. Because in the Old Testament, There are fewer than half a dozen passages where God is referred to as Father. Yet here was Jesus speaking of the ineffable God, the God who thundered from the top of Mount Sinai, the God who was so holy that his name could never be pronounced by human lips. Here was Jesus referring to the all-powerful Lord as my Father. But one of the images that the Gospels give us of Jesus is the intimate relationship that he had with God the Father. We witness it most uh, most especially on the eve of his crucifixion. In what is commonly called the high priestly prayer, John tells us Jesus lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. And later, as he kneels in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus pleads, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. And a few hours later, as he hangs from the cross, Jesus cries out on behalf of his executioners, Father, forgive them. Everywhere in the Gospels, we see that Jesus enjoyed a unique intimacy with the Father. And while this may have angered the Pharisees, the whole purpose of Jesus' coming was that you and I might share in that relationship through faith. I wouldn't be going too far to say that this is the whole aim that John had in mind when he sat down to write his Gospel In the opening verses, we find him writing, to all who received him, that is, to all who received Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And then later, in his first epistle, he rejoices, see what glorious love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. In Mark's gospel, we learn that the expression that Jesus used to address his father was that very intimate word, Abba. I had a first-hand experience of that word um, many years ago when uh, our family were renting a lakeside cottage uh, for the summer. The family next to us uh, in the next cottage were from Israel. And I remember one day hearing their little daughter running up from the beach towards her dad and excitedly shouting, Abba! Abba! And this is the relationship with God into which Jesus invites you and me today as we open our lives to him in faith. However, at the same time, let me make it clear that this is not a relationship of crass familiarity. Rather, it is one of childlike trust, respect, and obedience to an all-wise and all-powerful Father, one we know who only desires our good. But back to the dispute between Jesus and his detractors. It was time for them to launch another volley. Are you greater than our father Abraham? Their challenge was an accusation that Jesus either suffered from a delusional sense of grandeur or that he was deliberately lying. And I cannot imagine that they were ready for Jesus' reply. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. But what was Jesus talking about when he made this claim? I think there are at least three possible answers. And for each of them, we need to go all the way back to the book of Genesis. The first comes in chapter 12. Abraham was still living in the city of Ur at the time, in what is now modern-day Iraq. It was there that the Lord met with him and told him to go to a land that he would reveal to him. I will make of you a great nation, God says to Abraham, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, the first half of that promise had long been fulfilled before Jesus' time. The nation of Israel had existed in one form or another for more than a thousand years. But it was in Jesus that the second half of that promise would become a reality, that not just a single nation, but all the families of the earth would be blessed. And you and I this morning are the fruit of that blessing. And there are peoples we've never heard of in every corner of the world who are still finding that blessing that God promised to Abraham and that comes to us through Jesus. That's the first incident. The second um, that Jesus may have been referring to comes later on in Genesis chapter 17. By this time, Abraham had reached the ripe old age of 99 and his wife Sarah wasn't very far behind him. They'd long given up on any hope of having a child. Yet God promised once again that he would give them a son. These were his words in reference to Sarah. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Well, Abraham's response was to fall face down with laughter. And I only imagine that tears of Wonderment and joy must have streamed down into his beard as he contemplated the God of miracles, who is always faithful to his promises. Once again, that promise has found its fulfillment in Jesus. The third incident comes in the chapter that follows, in the dramatic account of the near sacrifice of the son whom Sarah had borne. God comes to Abraham once again and commands him, Abraham, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and <clears throat> offer him uh, to, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Well, I'm sure that most of you are familiar with how the story proceeds. At the last minute, with his knife raised, Abraham hears a voice telling him to stop. As he looks up, he glimpses a ram caught in a thicket, and he knows that the Lord has provided a sacrifice. And Abraham called the place where it happened, the Lord will provide. More than a thousand years later, another sacrifice would take place on that very mountain. And it would be another lamb of God's providing, another substitute, who with outstretched arms would offer life and salvation for all people. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Well, you might think, that that would have stopped the Pharisees. But they were, if nothing else, they were determined to win the debate. You are not yet 50 years old, they retorted. And have you seen Abraham? To which Jesus replied, with what has to be one of the most astounding claims in all of Scripture, before Abraham was, I am. Now, I suspect that most of you are familiar with what are called the seven I Am sayings of Jesus that are all found in John's Gospel. I wonder if we can list them off. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but will have the light of life. I am the gate. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I know my own, and my own know me. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though they die, yet shall they live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And the final one, I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now I want to say that each one of these is an utterly remarkable statement. And we've encountered them, a couple, a couple of them, I should say, already as we've been making our way through the Gospel of John. But in this morning's reading, we come across an eighth. Before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. And to my mind, this is the most astounding of Jesus' claims in all the Gospel, Notice that Jesus does not say, Before Abraham was, I was. But before Abraham was, I am. And once again, to understand this fully, we need to go back to the Old Testament. This time to the story of Moses in Exodus chapter 3. Moses was tending his father-in-law's sheep far out in the wilderness. When his eyes came across a bush that was in flames, something that should scare the living daylights out of us in Nova Scotia right now. But when he looked, he could see that although the bush was on fire, it was not being consumed. And then as he got closer, he could hear a voice calling to him from the flames. Moses! Moses! Well, we don't have time to go through the whole story right now, But the upshot was that what Moses was hearing was nothing other than the voice of God. This was the almighty creator of heaven and earth calling him to lead his people out of their centuries-long slavery in Egypt. Well, when Moses asked how he was to explain this to them, this is what he heard. Say this to the people of Israel. I AM has sent me to you. I AM has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Well, the Pharisees caught the illusion in a snap. No more clever comebacks now. The time for civilized debate was over, and they began to pick up rocks, to stone Jesus to death. But there is another reaction that they could have had. It's the reaction of Thomas, seeing Jesus after his resurrection, and exclaiming, My Lord and my God. And it will be the reaction of the chorus, and it will be the chorus of thousands upon ten thousands, who will gather around his throne. And cry aloud, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And by God's grace, you and I will be among them. Let's pray. our Savior Jesus Christ, the great I Am, Lord of all eternity, we bow before you. We worship you. Our minds cannot conceive of even a fraction of your greatness. And so I pray that as we have heard your words before Abraham was, I am. You would help each one of us once again to give our lives to you in worship and adoration and humble service service for your great name's sake. Amen.